Appreciate you guys coming today. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Um, we're uh, on a rip-roaring tour through the uh, New and Old Testament um, in the series that we're calling uh, The Nuts and Bolts of Christianity, Basic Tools uh, to Live a Christian Life. Uh, last week, we were um, dealing with uh, an interesting passage in uh, the book of John uh, from the lips of Jesus as um, uh, he began to teach us. And uh, this morning we get to hear from the Apostle Paul, and as we look to find uh, some more cool, some more keys um, and tools that we can use to um, uh, follow him in a more uh, cohesive way. So if you're looking uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in the first chapter um, as we get through this. You know, Paul is uh, writing to the Thessalonians. This was the second book that he wrote in the New Testament. Uh, the first was Galatians. Um, as far as we know, um, uh, James, Galatians, uh, First and Second Thessalonians were the first uh, few books that were written to the early church. Um, they're the, uh, the earliest ones we have in our canon of Scripture. And so we get a chance to see like the beginning, if you will, of the movement that was going to radically transform the face of this planet as we know it. And Paul was on the forefront of that, obviously, as uh, God's chosen man to minister to the Gentiles as he sought to bring um, uh, the word of the gospel to a world that desperately needed it. And so we see that here in, um, in Paul's message. I'm not going to uh, do a whole lot of preamble. I think we ought to jump right into uh, reading the word, and then we're going to break it down. So we're just going to look at verses 1 through 10, and we're going to try to see a little more um, that Paul was uh, trying to teach us. So Paul is uh, speaking along with Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace to you and peace, he says. In verse 2, he continues, he says, We give thanks to God always for you by making mention of you in our prayers. Um, prayers constantly, bearing in mind that your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God the Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, um, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit, and in the full conviction, just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. For the word of the Lord is sounded, was, has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Your, in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we may have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from the idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. All right, so that's a passage that we have in First Thessalonians. We're going to break it down just a bit, but there is some things that sort of uh, go before this message. Um, before the, Paul begins to write, as he begins to lay this out, this time the church in, Thess in Thessalonica in that area was founded um, back in, in Acts um, uh, chapter 17-ish. 
um, in some of those verses that are in there, you see that Luke records the accounting of it. And as far as we know, of all the church plants, Paul was only here for a few weeks. According to what uh, Luke tells us, he was only there for three Sabbath days. Um, that's three weeks. But from that three weeks of training and instruction, he was able to, um, obviously through the power of the Holy Spirit, bring this new church, church uh, uh, to full, fully functioning uh, living believers as the Holy Spirit ran amok among them. I find it interesting that in all of Paul's writings, this is uh, First and Second Thessalonians are the only books, as far as I know, I may be mistaken, um, where he doesn't have to defend his apostleship. So in a lot of times, especially in Galatians and a couple of the other ones, he starts off in his greeting and he starts off saying, hey, I'm Paul, I'm hanging out with this guy and this guy, and I am an apostle sent by God, called by his name to serve you and to move with you. And the idea that he had to bring that weight of apostolic authority into the discussion. But here to the church in Thessalonica, he didn't have to do that. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to why that is. I think personally, the reason why he didn't have to is that the majority of the believers here were, um, were not Jews, Jews, Jews that had converted to Christianity to the, the following of Christ, but they were, in fact, uh, more Gentile believers, and they were individuals that um, didn't have that Jewish baggage behind them and didn't have to look for that apostolic authority. He did say in the three weeks he was there, if you look in verse 6 or, or verse 5, he says that we were, were working among you with a full conviction. We proved who we were um, in those three short weeks that we came with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We brought the gospel message to you. And I think it's amazing what can be done in three weeks. You know, we often, I think the church has gotten away from those whole week-long revivals. Um, nowadays, I have a, we have an opportunity as a church to do like we did a couple years ago and bring in a revivalist that's uh, new in his, in his uh, preaching ability from Southwestern um, and to have him come up here for a week and, and minister to us. But, you know, when we say a week, we really don't mean a week anymore. Now, for a week-long revival, we're actually talking about three days. And those are three days, including Sunday, usually. So um, it's amazing how we've gotten away from that. When I was a kid, when we said a week-long revival, that meant seven days, maybe eight. We might even stretch it to 10 days, right, and still be in that old week-long umbrella. And in those days, you came. It didn't matter what you were doing. You showed up, right? You showed up every single night because if you didn't, you didn't love Jesus, and your, your pastor would tell you that. I mean, obviously, there was a, there was a spiritual problem, right? And, and so it's so hard sometimes to even get that. But we were talking to the Awana missionary that was here. And, you know, one of the problems that we're seeing uh, nationwide, not just in Awana, but in churches in general, is the, the need to be able to have the workers necessary to do the work. We talked about our Sunday school classes. We'd like to have more um, Sunday school class. We have the teachers. We have the, the people that, that God has, has specifically said, you are called to teach this age group, but we don't have the people just to come and sit with them to be able to make sure that our kids are safe, right? Because nowadays we're in a world where we don't always trust who we sit these kids with. And here's the thing too, guys, if you're teaching Sunday school, how do you as a teacher know that you can trust that the kids won't go to their parents and make a claim? against you. The only way you can do that is to protect yourself. We're in a whole different world now than we were even 10 or 15 years ago. And in this new world, we got to figure out how we're going to exist as a church. We're looking at Sunday nights and Wednesday nights as, as old staples of the church. I got a call a few weeks ago and they said, hey, are you guys having church this Wednesday night? And it was summertime and you know how summertime is around here. It's like trying to get, get anything going in, in the building for more than just Sunday morning. is like pulling teeth from a crocodile that's not very willing to give up his teeth. It's hard. 
And we struggle to try to fill the seats, to try to bring people in. But we're in, in really when it comes down to it, this is a this is a heart matter, right? This is a mess of spiritual matter. If you're going to say, and everybody has their excuses, right? We always look at why we don't want to do, why we don't have time. Truth of the matter is nobody has any more time today than they did 20 years ago. They don't have any more time or less time. We all have the same amount of time. That's the nature of time itself, right? I mean, talk to Einstein, relativity and all that stuff. Uh, Time is pretty consistent in this local gravity field. We can uh, all agree to that. Now, we start talking about going to the moon and other things. You know, we all get lighter. Time flows differently. But here on Earth... In Kenai, Alaska, we have the same amount of time they did 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. It's not about more or less time. It's about how we make use of it, right? We find time to do things we want to do. We find time to ride our four-wheelers. We find time to go shoot at animals in the woods. We find time to go, in the, uh, go, go fishing. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm like stepping all over the wrong toes, right? We find time to watch our reality TV shows. We find time to watch news, right? We go, okay, go there, we go there. Yeah, we find time to do the things we want to do, right? It's not a question of, and, and, that's, and I hate that expression, find time, find time. It's always like lost, as though we're, we're hiding it in a corner. We're like walking along in the house one day. Oh, I didn't see you there. Time, you know. It's not something that sneaks up on us. We know where it is. It's all a matter of proper planning, right? And where our priorities are. Now, I'm not sitting here saying that we ought to have seven-day revivals and we ought to be at church 24-hour days, seven days a week. But when I first got saved in, in, in 1984, it's what you did. If the doors of the church were open, you were there. You didn't question. It's what you did. And I think we've lost that flavor. And Paul brings that in when he, started, when he first begins this. And look what he says in the very first verse. He says, first he says, hey, it's, it's Paul, and, and I'm here with Silas or Silvanus, however you want to say it, and Timothy. And we're all hanging out together, and, and we, want to, we want to share this letter with you. Okay, that's what he's saying, basically. That's his greeting. I like the fact that he included Silvanus, and si- otherwise known as Silas in the New Testament. Silas was, uh, was an extra bit of weight, right? It's like when you have that, that heavy weight with you, you kind of want to, to show him off a little bit. See, Silas in the New Testament was known as a prophet, okay? He had, that, he had that title, okay? So when he says, hey, I'm Paul, and I've got Silas the prophet with me, okay? And he's sort of writing this with me. And of course, we got Timothy, our young brother, who we're training up in the faith. And all three of us are sending our greetings to you, he says. And look what he says, to the church. To the church, he says. You know, very infrequently in the New Testament is the word church used. It's a word that the church co-opted. It's a, it's a word that actually, it's, the word is ecclesia. It just means gathering and assembly. In, in that day and age, if you were to say, hey, I'm going to church, they're going to say, what church are you talking about? Because they had all these assemblies, ecclesias, they had all these assemblies all over the place. And everybody had a civic or a social group that they were a part of. And so everybody had their own church, if you will. Some of them had three or four of them they may attend. And so it was an assembly. It was a body of believers gathered together in a certain focus. And he's saying, you guys, to the church of the Thessalonians. But he went a little step further. He says, let's define this. We're not talking about your generic run-of-the-mill assembly. This isn't a, this isn't a, a, a boys and girls club, right? This isn't a karate meeting. No offense, Brother Mike. This is not just something you do to fill some time on a Sunday afternoon when you could be doing something better. This is the church, and it goes up step further. He says, this is the church um, that's, that's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's throwing that out there because he wants to define this down to the very micro segment. He wants you to know exactly who he's talking about. He's talking about us, really. 
The followers of the one true God. The followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I love it when you see the word Jesus Christ in the New Testament because so many people that don't know anything about Jesus, they just assume that was Jesus' last name, right? He's just Jesus Christ. I'm Al Weeks. He's Jesus Christ. And that's his business card. He probably pulled that out. I'm Jesus Christ. How you doing? That's not the case. And you know, it's funny because the Jews actually can't stand that we've, we've, we've stolen that from them, right? Because that's their term. Because Christ is Christos, it, it's, it's the Greek version of Messiah that was used by the Jewish people. And so basically, he is Jesus, Lord Jesus. Okay, he's Kyrios, Lord Jesus. He's the master of all he surveys. The universe is his playground. He is the king of all that is. He is Lord Jesus, his first name, the Messiah, the savior of the universe. That's who he is, Right? And this is who we, this is the church, right? This is who you are. You are a group of people that believe in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he throws the grace and peace to you. I love what he does there. And this is an amazing thing. And you know, a lot of times we see this, oh, grace and peace. Peter, uh, Paul always loved throwing grace and peace around. It's like he was the, the grace and peace purveyor of the New Testament, right? He just had pockets of it, like, a, like an old pastor likes to have pockets full of candy for the kids. He just sort of comes in and hands out the candy of grace and peace to everybody. And that's because we see that floating from him. But it's more than that, okay? See, Peter, uh, Paul was trying to attach himself to the old and the new. So he's throwing out the word grace. Grace, we know, in the Greek word is the charis, okay? And it's a real powerful word. It just simply means, um, in, in that world, it just simply means good on you, right? Good for you. I hope you do well. But the Christians took it and made a whole new meaning for it. He attached it to the Old Testament concept of covenant steadfast love. He said, may you have the covenant steadfast love of God. That's what grace means to them, right? And then he goes a step further. He goes, I'm giving you the new, this is the Greek version, right? This is the Greek world of greeting. We're telling you this is what the way that it is. We're giving you the new charis meaning. But then he throws in the word peace. See, peace, the word there in Greek is irene, okay? But that irene is actually a Greekified version of shalom. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm writing this to the Gentile and the Jew. And so he's throwing out grace for the, for, the, for, the, for the Gentiles that understood charis and grace. And he's throwing out peace to the Jews so they know that they are part of this new family, Gentile and Jew, as he's trying to bring them together in a form of unity under one blanket, under a single, single following banner of Jesus Christ. And he throws that all out in the very first verse. It's a beautiful picture of what God is trying to set forth in his loving kingdom. And it's a beautiful picture of the way a church should be. This is not a synagogue. We're not gathered together just to read the word of God. We gather together to sing hymns of praise, to lift up the name of God. We gather together to hear the reading and the expounding of God's word. This is exactly what they've been doing for 2,000 years. The earliest records we have of the first century church, the early Christians, the first Christians, we're talking John, Peter, James, all those guys, they gathered together in front of large, running, moving bodies of water. They would sing praises to God at dawn, and they would open up the word of God, and they would preach the word of God, even in the earliest days of the Christian faith. And then you know what they would do? After they got up that early with no coffee, I might add, because that's a, 
a later you know, invention. You know, they didn't have that. They would get up bright and early. They would go and they would worship. They would have that wonderful time and then they would retire back to somebody else's house where they would break bread and they would fellowship with one another. And oftentimes they would go through the ritual of the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of, of, the, of, of what Jesus did for them as they were able to move into that time of fellowship. And it was one flowed into the other because it was all part and parcel of the worship of the one true God. And we see that now as Paul is moving into verse 2. Verse 2. Wow, that took a while to get to verse 2, didn't it? And we've got like eight more to go. All right, that bodes well. I'll be here till 1. So, very good. He says, we give thanks to God always for you. I love that. That constant thanks that's being offered by Paul. It's very reminiscent of what he says about the Holy Spirit, who is constantly making uh, groanings from us, for us, on behalf of us, to God the Father. Last week we talked about the paraclete, the the advocate that we had with the Holy Spirit to God. This morning we see that Paul also prayed in all ways, and he talked about later on that they were living in a fully functioning Christian way in front of the believers, and in verse 6 says they became imitators, the church became imitators of them. We should follow that same pattern that Paul is doing to pray constantly, not only for the people here, but also the other areas of churches that we are connected with. You know, I have a good friend of mine who pastors a church down the road, Lighthouse, Dan Smouse. He's a great guy. If you ever get a chance to stop by the gun counter at Walmart, he works there part-time. He's a wonderful guy. He loves Jesus. He's pruned his best to grow that fellowship out there. There are some pastors around here that wouldn't even mention the man's name for fear that you guys might say, oh, our pastor says he's a good pastor. Maybe I ought to check him out next Sunday. Who knows? I might be moving my membership in a week or two. You know, if that's the case, if God's calling you to worship somewhere else, go. Go with my blessing. We don't, you don't belong to me. You belong to God. And his house isn't this building. His house is us. We are the the house of the living God. And where we choose to worship, that's where the Holy Spirit goes. When two or more are gathered, I'm there. God's big enough to be in more than one building at one time. Believe it or not. Despite what the Jews thought with their little hidey hole in the Holy of Holies, Jesus Christ will not be contained. And no matter what we do, we can't hold him back. All we can do is unleash him. And that's what we should do. And I would love to see all the churches here on the peninsula that believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that's preaching the gospel as it's written in the Word of God, to be so overflowing that none of us have seating room. That would be amazing. I know Phil would love to be able to set some outdoor speakers up, right? As we have like a drive-in theater effect, because all of our seats were full, and we had to have the parking lot outside with windows open without broadcasting that out there for all of them. That'd be great. Then you could really be that uh, powerful, booming, you know, worship-leading voice. That'd be great, wouldn't it? I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> but it would be, it'd be so cool to see it happen. To see God's kingdom grow so exponentially. And we all look around, we, we, we laugh and we chuckle. But the truth is, it, it, it hurts God's heart not to see his house full. I mean, he knows he's God. He knows who's going to come and who's not. The Bible says that he died for us while we were yet sinners. He also says that he doesn't wish anyone to perish and go to hell. He wants all to come to know him. He knows not all is going to come, but he wants that. Let me tell you something. Every single person that's not here, every sister, every brother, every grandchild, every kid, every neighbor, every coworker that's not in church today, somewhere on the peninsula, 
Jesus wants them. Desperately. And for whatever reason, he's chosen us to be his hands and feet. Just like he chose Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And the children and, and the people in, uh, in Thessalonia. As we see that he's going forward, he lays out this pathway. And this is where we get to that, that three, if you have a three-point message, I guess this was where it would begin, although we're like 15 minutes into it. I know Terry's counting, so. No, not really, okay. <laughs> sometimes I, like, it took you a long time to get to that, didn't it? I know, sometimes it does. I ramble a little bit, and I apologize. That's part of that ex, extemporaneous, you know, I just go where the Holy Spirit leads me. Sometimes it leads me to be here for a while. Um, so he's here in verse 3 is where we get those three points. I add, we talked about the nuts and bolts, right? The tools we need for Christian, proper Christian godly living is right here. It begins right here. He says, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. We're talking basically the life of faith. We should live a life of faith. We should live a life of love. And we should, be, we should live a life filled with the hope of the coming again of the of Jesus, of Lord Jesus Christ. That's the nature of where we're at. If we lived in faith, Imagine what would happen with everything else in our life. And I'm not talking about this little weak-willed faith. We're like, God, if you really want to let me do, maybe possibly, you know, as we mealy a mouth, as we beat around the bushes, we don't really give God specifics. You know, sometimes I think that's what's missing. I think the, it was the book of James or is it John that says that, that, um, that we pray amiss, right? That we pray like we're, we're, we're unstable in our ways because we're like double-minded people. We don't really pray like we should. Now, we do have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that's making that, that advocacy before the Lord, but he is still waiting to hear from his children. This is not some kind of weird name it, claim it faith, but I'm telling you, he said in his word that he will withhold nothing from us if we ask it of him, right? If we are within his will and his will is within us and our asking is within him where he's calling, he's going to see us do amazing things. You know, it's when, when Jesus was confronted with this, he said, what father would give his child a serpent or a stone if he asked for something good. No father would do that. No earthly father would do that. How in the world is our heavenly father going to be any different? He wants us not to survive, but to thrive. He wants to see his kingdom grow. He wants to see his son exalted above all others. And we see that here. You know, the assembly in Thessalonica, they, they functioned as a church. And they had a sort of a weird kind of role. And I think it's, it's very similar to our role here in Kenai. Their role was to help the believers to define what, this, what their place was in the larger society. They were trying to, to help their members to understand who they are and where they fit in this non-Christian world. And where that fit is, is all wrapped around the hope that they have in the world to come. And that's where we are right now as we focus on what God has called us to do. I love it when I read this, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. All of that is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And look what it says right at the end of verse 3, in the presence of our God and Father. You know, all this is done in the presence of the King of the universe. All of this is done with his blessing and his willingness to support it. All of this is from God himself. I like what he does in verse 4. In verse 4, he throws out the word choice, that he chose you. This is the hardest, most debated, one of the hottest, most debated topics in most evangelical churches today. Anytime that you, um, uh, that a church wants to call a new pastor, one of the questions almost guaranteed on the questionnaire they ask them is, um, what's your stance on election? 
Uh, are you a hardcore Calvinist? Do you believe the, in a complete and utter uh, election with no, no, no say-so whatsoever? Or are you closer to that free will side, right? And it depends upon how the question is written. You can sort of see where the church lies, right? Because a lot of times they, put over, they overemphasize the one they like and they underemphasize the one they don't. And you can sort of read into it a little bit. It's always interesting to see how churches fall, stack up. But it's no different whether or not you're asking if, if, you're a, uh, if you're this sports fan or that sports team fan. Really, it comes down to this. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? That's where it comes from. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit has allowed this tension to reign supreme. And we see that here. He just throws the word out there. He goes, know that brethren are beloved by God, his choice of you. He just throws that out and gives us no explanation. Now, I know we see this, oh, but it, and a lot of you are say, well, well, we have the work of Romans, we have this, we have that, we, we have a more fuller look at the picture. Well, we do, but remember, this is the second book that was even written in the New Testament by Paul. He has not defined these terms. The first century believers as reading this, they would have read this, they would have said, what does that mean? As they tried to work it out, and you know they said that because later on, they had in further works by Paul and Peter, as well as um, uh, James and John, they had to get a, a more a deeper clarity in this. But Paul just goes right through that. He says, he chose you. He chose you for our gospel. For our gospel did not come to you by word only, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. I love that. The Holy Spirit was moving through those people. It was an amazing opportunity. You see, hearing a, hearing a sermon is one thing, but seeing a sermon, and we've talked that before, is so much more. But it's even more than that. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes when, when you're not, when you're traveling, or, or people are traveling, they, they say to me, well, you know, we weren't able to make it to church, but we did listen to it online. Or, or I didn't get a chance to go to your church, but I did tune in to Ravi Zacharias on the way as I was driving past the church on the way to my fishing hole, right? And that's okay, because we got the word preached to us. So, so we're covered that week, right? That's what we're thinking. Again, we're back to that box checking, Phil. We're like, we can do X, we can do Y, and we can do Z. We're good Christians. So I didn't hear you preach pastor, so it's okay, and so therefore, I'm, I heard a pastor preach, and it's so much better, because, you know, we can hear, and then you get a variety, right, because then you get to be able to hear some of the good guys, and then you also get to hear your regular pastor that's, you know, barely passable, you know, but I think that's, you're missing out on something. See, coming to church is not just about hearing me, because if you're coming just to hear me, please stay home. You're not going to, you're not going to be happy, I'm telling you now, because my sermon is nothing special, but when you're coming here, you're doing something more than that. You're putting yourself under the authority of a pastor and a group of deacons that are sharing the load to minister to you guys, to keep our faith, to make sure that heresy is not creeping in, to make sure that your faith is being shepherded properly. And that's hard for people to say that. You know, we don't like to think about that, but that's the way, that's the model, right? I'm not just called a pastor. I am actually the shepherd, right? I'm the under shepherd. And so when you come here, you're placing yourself under this authority. And honestly, if, if that's not a place you feel good at, you have two choices, right? You have two choices. You can get over yourself or go somewhere else. Because let me tell you something. I'm going to quote one of my favorite pastors growing up when I was a kid. It's a whole lot easier for you to move your membership than to me to move my family. So think about that, right? I'm not trying to be mean, but that's something you guys have to deal with. You know, Paul had to deal with this in his ministry. I have to deal with my, every pastor has to go through this. 
And I don't mind people questioning me. I think I, I, I welcome it. I don't mind people calling and uh, saying, well, you know, you're, you're, you're being a little wrong here. I need that. You should be like the Bereans in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament. You should be studying Scripture. You should listen to what I'm saying. Check it with the Word of God. And where I'm wrong, you need to tell me. That's your job. Part of your job. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. I look forward to our Monday meetings as we go through what I mistake. You know, no, Bill, I tell you, Bill is a great guy too, and, and and it's important to have people like Bill and Gary and some of our deacons here that love Jesus with an intensity that burns so bright, because they're here with a passion to make sure that I'm where I need to be and you're where you need to be, and that's a good thing. Not many churches have good godly deacons like we do. Down in the south, if you've ever been to church in the south, deacons is like a, it's like a, what, uh, it's almost like a four-letter word, but there's more than four letters in there. And, uh, yeah, you know, and I know in the first church that I ever uh, got saved in, Cedar Creek Baptist Church, um, the deacons had a place. They were in the parking lot right in between the nursery building and the, and the main sanctuary, and they had these poles that were driven into the ground, right? And these poles sort of blocked the traffic from going through, and the top of the poles were like open, and so it was like these pipes that were in there, and had open pipes, and that's where, the, that's where the deacons would sit around and smoke and drop their cigarette butts in when they, when they, whenever they saw somebody coming, and that's who they were, that's, and I'm like, this is terrible, and then they're the ones that uh, they just basically said, and I heard them say it when I was there. They said to the pastor who had to leave, they said to the pastor, we were here long before you got here. We'll be here long after you're gone, which may be sooner than you think, you know, and that's sad because then it's the wrong focus, right? Then we're not really the church. We become individuals pushing our agenda. And I think that's what Peter is, or Paul is really talking about here. He's talking about this gospel that they preached. And this is something I think is important. You know, I, I listen to a lot of preachers during the week. I try to get, um, do my due diligence. I listen to, I read a lot of commentaries to the passages that I'm working on. I try to read the different versions so that I can get a good sense of where the, the translators were going in the various versions. And the one thing that I've come away with this, and when you talk about the gospel, this is a very, this is a very important thing because when, when God comes into the room, people have to make a decision, right? And there, when, when God comes in, there's, 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 there's ways to accept him and ways to reject him. And I think that if for our context, there's a couple different ways that you can reject God. So if we're saying God walked in the room, and I believe he has, and he is presenting to you the gospel message, which is the simple fact, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came, he lived a godly, sinless life, he died on the cross for, uh, uh, for our sins, they laid him in a tomb, and three days later, God raised him from the dead, and he is now ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he has left the Holy Spirit for us to guide us as we journey towards him for those that are called according to his purpose. And I, I know we can elaborate this more, but ultimately it's like this. Christ died for us so that we have the opportunity to become the children of God. This is the gospel message in a nutshell. And so when Paul says, we brought our gospel to you, we didn't just give it to you by word of mouth, but we also lived it in front of you. There's something that's, that's happening there. And those people that he lived in from had two choices. They could either reject God outright, and that means just completely turn away from him. And if you read the account in Acts chapter 17, that's what some of these guys did. They picked up Paul and they said, you know, that's it. You're done. You're out of here. They drove him from the city. One of the early believers, I think his name was Jason or Justin, I forget the, the, the exact name, but he, he was a, a believer that lived in the city, and he was actually taken into custody and held in like security. Basically, they said, Justin said, you can take me, and, and I'll, I'll stand in their face, but you need to let them go. And Paul and Silas and the rest of them were, were allowed to leave 
based upon that and head off on the rest of their second missionary journey. And we see that here when Paul says that we lived. You guys had your faith that was born out of that, out of tribulation, out of trials that was going on during that time period. And there are people that will reject God. But you know, there's, some, there's another way that we can reject God, and this is the more insidious way. And this is the way that I think that, is, that, that Bill and I and, and a lot of the deacons, we struggle with, with our church, not only our church, but every church I've been in. And that is the idea that we embrace aspects of Christianity, like the law or this or that, in this vain attempt to earn our salvation. And I think that's something that we have to be very careful, because when you put anything other than Jesus Christ into the mix of salvation, you are rejecting God. You're rejecting the gospel. You're saying the gospel is not good enough. Paul was very clear when he talked about that in Galatians. We read it this morning in Sunday school. He said, if you add anything to the mix of salvation, then you've nullified, you've nullified the death of, cross, or the death of Christ on the cross. If we could earn our way to salvation, then why did Christ have to die? Why did he have to go to the cross? And I think that's something that we need to look at. It's a problem because that is a rejection. It's a rejection of really doing the will of God. And when you embrace God, you have three ways that you can really embrace him. The first way is to, uh, is to do it with irreligion. We already talked about that. You're, you're, you're encountering God. You're reacting to him. You're, you're not really embracing God, but you're, you're, you're pulling away and just completely separating yourself from any religion at all. You're off in a different world, and you're not even going to be anything part of it. The two other ways deal with, and we talked about them a little bit, religion and the gospel. Paul was talking to these people, and he wanted them to know that the gospel was the right way. To embrace God, to respond to God with the gospel being first and foremost. You see, when God brought the Israelites freedom, when he brought them out of Egypt and he gave them the law, the most important thing about that story is that he gave them salvation and redemption first and the law second. You ever notice that? It's not like Moses came in with the tablets, right? He didn't show up knocking on Egypt's door saying, hey, Pharaoh, I've got these 10 commandments that God has given me. I need to share them with my people. No. He had to demonstrate his power and his willingness to save them and bring them to a place where they could hear the message. It's funny that when he got there and they were in that place to hear the message, they still couldn't hear. The first time he went up there with the tablets, came back down, they were messing up royally. That's the way they are. That's the way we are. We can sit through some of the best, and this, this thing I think is funny, we sit through some of the best preaching in the world at times, usually when I'm sitting there listening to a, a volunteer preacher, and we can pick it apart because we get convicted. You know, this is the thing that frustrates me the most is, is, you know, when you're sitting there, and this is part that you get from a live preaching, right? And this is what I'm trying to say about that whole in the car listening to a pastor as opposed to in the, in the seat. When you're under the authority of a pastor and you're hearing preaching, I'm going to tell you now, there are going to be times that you're going to sit there and you're going to feel that I'm preaching at you. And you're going to say, oh my goodness, he's picking on me. Right? He's, he, knows, he knows me. He knows I'm having this problem. This is an argument that we've been fighting with for a long time. And he's using the pulpit a whole 35, 45 minutes to pick on just me. Well, yes, I am. I am. And I'd love to sit here and say I'm doing it on purpose, but I'm not. Truth of the matter is, if you're sitting there and you're feeling picked on, it's not me. 
That's the Holy Spirit. That's the truth of the matter. Now, I want to say 90% of the time you'll come to church, you'll hear a message, you'll hear the songs, and, and you may walk away and you may not feel picked on at all. I know Terry and I have talked quite a bit because I, I need to feel picked on a little bit. You know, I need to feel like, like, like I've had some toes stepped on. And I think we all do at times because it helps keep us in a focus. But one thing we need to do is, is to not use that, that, that we, this is what we're talking about, devolving into religion rather than into the gospel. We, we focus, instead of accepting the rebuke, and rather, rather than having a teachable spirit that says, maybe just possibly I might be wrong here, we instead turn on the messenger, right? We do that all the time. Happens all throughout history. And I think it's important that we focus on what God's calling us to do. Because here's the thing. If we're not right, if we're focused on religion rather than the gospel, how can we ever reach them? Because I'm telling you, I've seen religion. I don't want any part of it. Jesus didn't either. He was faced with the, some of the worst adherence, the most zealous adherence to a faithless religion on the planet. And it galled him. If you ever get a chance, go back through the Gospels and just look for the times when Jesus was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. I'll tell you, some of the most scathing comments that were handed out to any human being on the planet was handed out to those individuals because they knew the truth, but they chose yet to hide in legalism rather than seeking to just be a follower of God. You know, the beautiful thing is, is that the law is a gift. Law is a gift. It was a gift to the Israelites and it's a gift to us. We are not saved by the law, but we're saved unto good works, unto the law. And we can use the guidance of the Old Testament and the New to form a path, a rule of life, a way forward as we seek to follow God the way that he wants us to. And the beautiful thing of having people like Bill and Gary and some of our good, uh, good deacons and leaders in this church is that we can look at their lives and I've talked to some of these men, and they'll, you've talked to them too. And they'll be the first one to tell you, don't look at me, but I do look at them. And I think there's a reason for it. We should celebrate our successes and our victories. We should celebrate their elders that have gone before us. And we should look at the wisdom they've gleaned over 20, 30, 40 years of serving God. And we should look at what they have to offer us because they're living a life that we should also, uh, we should be, they should be an example that we should emulate as we seek to follow God's will. That's what he said. He says, you imitated us, but, but we want you to imitate God. And we see near the end of this, he sort of rolls it all up into one nice little package in verses 9 and 10. Actually, we can look at 7 and 8, but we're just are looking at time frames. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But verses 9 and 10, he just said, look at this. He says, this is the message that the people were saying about you. You've turned to God from idols, you're now serving the one true God and you wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. He's going right back to verse three, the work of love, the labor of, uh, the work of faith, the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in the coming again of Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we are. That's the nuts and bolts of what we should be. We should be living a life of faith, love and hope. These are the markers of the Christian community. You want to know how to reach the people that are out there? You want to know how to gather these folks that are out there into here? It's only by love. It's only by living a life of faith in front of them. You know, I tell you, when tragedy sets in, when trials come, 
And when we start having the garbage that our life sometimes looks like to us, if we can maintain a faith that God is working us through it, we can maintain a hope, we can live that loving existence even within those trials, it's amazing how people can come after us, watch us through that, and say, I don't know how you got through that trial. How did you do it? And it just opens the door to share your faith. This is what we're talking about. So as we look forward in this, as we say, how can we take this out to a larger world? How can we bring this context out in a way that's meaningful to us? I would say this, if you're a follower of the living God, and Paul has defined what that looks like, you should be living a life that's marked deeply with faith, love, and hope. And you should do it so naturally that the gospel pours out of every pore of your being. Now, I know that's the aspirational goal. Most of us are not always that way. You know, our, our effort in the morning after our prayer time and our Bible reading and after we get out of the first or second cup of coffee and we get on the road and we start heading to our place of employment, you know, that's where, the, that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, right? That's when we get into the areas where we have to really put our faith to action. Because let me tell you something, there are some really stupid drivers out here in Kenai. You know, it's very frustrating. Now, I don't even drive that far. I got to drive like four blocks from my house to work. And it's amazing to me how that, those are sometimes the longest four blocks I've ever had to drive. And I'd say it's amazing how many idiots you find between there and here, right? And that's, you know, every time I get on the road, I think to myself, oh my gosh, <laughs> somebody needs an altar experience. <laughs> Judge not, I know. And then I'm thinking to myself, and then as soon as I do that, the Holy Spirit hits me and says, really, how is your driving today, right? How are you doing? Are you not on the, on, the, on the other side of that? And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, you're right. I am. Because that's where we're at, right? We should be living that life of faith, hope, and love. And how can we show that to a world that needs it? Sometimes it's just in the way we drive, some way we respond. Sometimes it's walking into a store with a smile on our face. Sometimes it's just reaching out to somebody that needs it the most. Sometimes it's being sensitive to the needs of the people around us, so much so that when they're having a bad day, we don't turn around and walk away. We walk closer. We embrace. We share. You know, it's, it's a costly thing to be a Christian. It's going to cost you everything you have. It's going to cost everything you've ever wanted to have. It's going to cost every dream that you ever thought that you thought you wanted to have. It's the most expensive life you'll ever live. But it's worth it. Completely. I can tell you that from first-hand experience. My desire was not to be a preacher. God's desire was for me to be a preacher. When I was 16 years old, he said to me, Al, you're going to be a preacher. And I said, I don't know about that. And he said, oh, yeah, you are. And I said, well, God, I really want to be a doctor because that's what I want to do, right? I want to go in the medical field. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I did. I moved in that direction. And I tell you, I cannot, and Sandy will be the first one to tell you, I, I can't tell you how many doors God closed. I mean, and we're not talking about little closing. It's not like a soft, gentle, I'm just going to push this shut when you're not looking close. It's like slamming your face and break your nose because you're still trying to go through the door kind of thing. I've lost scholarships. I've had years of school that were completely tossed out and useless from the, the, the degree that God really wanted me to have. I've had entire pathways that I was walking down fully intending to spend my rest of my life in this direction, telling God the whole time, I can be your minister doing this. And God's saying, no, no. 
I had dreams of three or four cars, big house. When Sandy and I first got married, she, she did the, she did, right before we got married, we started talking like all newlyweds or oh, soon to be newlyweds say, they're like, how many kids do you want? And that's what Sandy asked me. That's a loaded question, Phil. You know that, right? Yeah. Because I don't have to, I don't have to carry any of them, right? You know, I, I just have to work hard and hopefully provide enough money for them all. And, and ideally, you know, when you're young, you expect you're going to be able to do that, right? And so, you know, she asked me that. She goes, how many? And I was thinking, I didn't want to tell her 10 because I, I knew I'd scare her off. And I said, I don't know, baby, how many do you want? She said, I can do six. I said, sold. <laughs> we got four. We got four. And really, we had three. And, um, and Sandy challenged God and said, if I'm going to get pregnant, I'm going to get pregnant today. Three weeks later, she was pregnant. Mission accomplished. Four kids. You know, I don't have the big mansion that I wanted. I don't have the huge bank account that I thought I could use. I'm not the jet-setting, trendy, well-dressed, well-groomed, skinny, loving, wonderful, amazing life individual with all kinds of muscles and good looks, with long, flowing locks, straight teeth. I can go on with all the dreams I had of myself, right? What I got was what I had. But I can tell you now, I'd rather be where I am now, short, fat, balding, no teeth, fully in love with Jesus Christ, fully in the middle of his will, fully wanting to embrace the kingdom that he has brought me into because the alternative is not worth it. That's me. That's my story. Each and every one of you that calls yourself a Christian, you have a story. How are you using your story to see his kingdom grow? With anybody that's in here that doesn't know you, and I'm looking around, and I, I don't really see anybody that I don't recognize. I don't see anybody that I don't know and have talked to and believe that you guys are saved. But I would be remiss in not giving you a chance. Because just like the man that witnessed to me, who was, I mentioned him in Sunday school, he was a deacon for most of his life. And he found out, found out, the Holy Spirit came to him, visited him, in cut-off shorts and a T-shirt with a fireball in his mouth and a weed eater in his hand on a Saturday morning as he's working for, the, for God to earn his salvation, that he was lost as the day is long. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter where you go. If the person you, don't, you know is not Jesus Christ, you will not get to heaven, period. So you need to ask yourself, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, if you've never bowed your will, if you've never said the words, if you've never had a moment where you have said, God, I refuse to allow my will to dictate my life. I'm giving it over to you. Like C.S. Lewis, who said, I gave all that I know of myself to all that I know of him. If you've never had that moment, you need to ask yourself, am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? If you're not, in a few minutes, we're going to sing some songs. And we're going to give this opportunity. The altar is going to be open. You can come down. You can get your heart right. You can assure a place for yourself in heaven. You can give yourself a place in the kingdom of God right now if you want to. And I know some of you are saying, well, pastor, I'm already saved, but I'm going through some serious trials and tribulations. I'm dealing with some things that are heavy, and I don't know how to do it myself. The beautiful thing about this altar is it's, it'll fit any need. We've gotten away from the altar. We really have. It's that manby-pamby feel and feel-goodness that we get in churches, right? We try to make it easy for people. 
I kind of like the old school pastors that would say turn and burn. I kind of like the old school pastors that say come on down for an altar experience. That you need to find Jesus. The only place you're going to find him is right here. I kind of miss that, you know. I would love to see us get back to that. I think we've missed something, Phil. You know, we've made our, we've made our, our altar carpeted, but we've removed the pads, right? Because we don't really expect anyone to come down here and use it. Truth of the matter is, this is where you need to come. That's where you need to come. And you know something? The neat thing about this is when you come down here, when you kneel here, you're not hiding. There's nothing between you and Jesus, but a little bit of carpet. And for those of us that aren't going through a problem right now, we get to look at you, and we're not sitting there saying, glad I'm not like that guy Tom. That man is always down there. He's got some serious Jesus issues. No. I know Tom. You know Tom. He loves Jesus as deeply as, as any human being ever met. He's not coming down here for that. He's coming down here to be an example. He's coming down here because he knows where he wants to meet his God. And he wants to let you know that he's struggling. And he says to you, pray for me. Love on me. I need it. One old preacher asked me, he said, Pastor, I noticed you didn't stand down front to greet the people to come down. Because you need to change that. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I stand there in the front. That was the old school, right? You know, where you turn and burn, come down front, this and that. Shake my hand, I'll pray for you. I'm going to dispense you some grace and peace. Just come on down, right? No. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But mostly I want you guys to know I'm no different than you. I need Jesus too. And I don't want you to ever think that my place is there. Because if you have a pastor whose place is there, you have the wrong pastor. Period. My place isn't there. My place is right there. On my face. That's where our place is. That's where our power is. This morning, we're going to open the altar. Come. Let Jesus take what's, what, you're, what you're bearing. Whatever it is. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, I, I don't really know any other way to say it, but Lord, I just, I can't live without you. Spent years trying to dictate to you how my service is going to look. Father, I ask that you just strip away that, that sin. Father, I know I can't manipulate you. I can't change you. I can't mold you. Father, just the contrary, I ask you to change me, multiply, mul- metamorphose me. Lord, allow me to be what you have called me to be. Father, I ask that you'll strip away any hubris or pride. That you allow me, like everyone else in here, to come before you as simply this, a sinner saved by grace. Father, I ask that you be with each and every member here. Those of us that love you and are called according to your purpose, Lord, I ask that you will move in these people. Move in me. That we might be drawn deeper into your word, deeper into your love, deeper into your river of life. Father, I ask that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, Lord, I don't know who it might be, but I know you do. Father, I ask that you don't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. Lord, that you'll transform their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That you'll give them a true spirit, a desire to know you more. And Father, as we open up this altar, I ask you to bring those that need to be here, down here. That we might seek your love, your mercy, and your grace in a more deep and satisfying way. 
Lord, we put all this in your hands. We ask you to guide us and direct us. As we turn it over to our praise and worship team, Lord, we ask in these final few minutes that your spirit weigh heavy on us and move us where you want us to be. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll stand for the hymn of invitation.